Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast by the Yeider Institute at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Today's episode is part two in our two-part series on adjustment. We're picking up from our conversation last week with Grant Aldonis, former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. In the last episode, I asked Grant what we really mean by adjustment. Here's his response. Adjustment's best understood as a response to economic change. The economic change we're facing now relates to a race between technology on the one hand and education and training on the other. In this episode, we discuss trade adjustment assistance, first created in 1962, and how to rethink it for a new era of global economic competition. Trade adjustment assistance for our listeners, to remind them, was authorized back in 1962, so it's been around a while, and it's effectively acknowledging that maybe some workers would be hurt by, you know, more trade liberalization, and so it was an attempt to, to help those who might be hurt by trade as the country was opening up more and liberalizing trade. So there's TAA for workers and TAA for firms. You oversaw TAA to firms, I know, when you served as Undersecretary for International Trade at the Department of Commerce. But I want to start with TAA for workers for a moment. And just to give, again, a little context to our listeners in terms of how far this program reaches, I looked up some statistics for fiscal year 2020, which showed there were 1,183 petitions were filed and 770 of those were certified for TAA. And After that, about 96,000 workers were eligible to then apply for TAA under those certified petitions because it's kind of a two-step process where a group has to apply. And then if that is certified, then an individual worker can then take the step to pursue TAA. And so about 23,436 individuals were actually served um, under TAA in fiscal year 2020. So it just gives a sense of the scale. Um, of those, about half of them received some training through the program. And the latest report that I saw of the Department of Labor noted that the employment rate of those who did complete training and received a credential as a result of that training were higher than those who did not, which continued a multi-year trend. So that suggests that some training is important um, for better outcomes here when going through TAA. So my question for you following um, this kind of recitation of stats is, is really a few here. So one is, you know, what about workers who lost their jobs for reasons other than trade, like technology, for example? Is it fair to have a program that focuses so specifically on trade? Why is trade viewed differently, job loss from trade, for example, particularly when we've just talked about tax policy and how important that is in creating incentives for companies to do certain things? And then another question, too, would be, given these numbers, and TAA is really an intensive program, there is case management for individuals who go through it, there's training opportunities. How easy would it be to, to scale this up if, if that, you know, were to be desired to help workers more hurt by trade? Because that is still, you know, a phrase, you know, that we hear a lot in the public discourse about trade. So several things to follow up on there. You can take them in any order <laughs> that you would like. Well, I, the first thing is, is to say your question targets the critical point, Jill, which is that most of the economic churn we're witnessing is broader than trade. Most of it's driven by technology. Um, And there's nothing about the trade adjustments assistance program that addresses that challenge. So in other words, the program, and you're correct in saying that people who want to use it as an implicit critique of trade policy, because somebody built a trade adjustment assistance program, happy to go into why it was framed that way in 1962, which is not what critics of trade policy now pretend it is. Um, But a true adjustment assistance program would address the broader challenge that workers actually confront. 
And to your point about scaling it up, it would involve two elements. The first would involve exactly what we were talking about in the context of tax policy. It would not involve government assistance, but it would involve changing those economic policies, particularly in the tax arena, that hinder the economic mobility of American workers. Let me give you a personal example that I saw many times, was that if you are a worker and you're a candle maker and you think this electricity thing is a passing fad and you decide that you want to get a little more training in candle making, you can actually deduct that on your taxes. That's a way of ensuring you stay in your current job. Now, if on the other hand, you think that maybe electricity is the coming thing and you think lights might be around for a while and you decide you have to change jobs, there's no relief under the tax code for the training you might want to take, even while you're still working as a candle maker, to move into a different role in our economy. You can't even uh, amortize it, even though it is, in fact, an investment in your own human capital. So you've got the tax code telling you to stay in your job, even though you might realize that this is short term and that things are going to change in a way that means you're going to have to move on. Now, that's fundamentally a misdiagnosis of the problem and a misunderstanding of where adjustment assistance starts. It starts by aligning the, our broad economic policies in a way that fosters the mobility for which American workers are famous throughout the world. And that has actually slowed down in the last couple of decades in part because of the economic policies have, but that's not an adjustment assistance program like TAA, if you catch my drift. That really is trying to say, how harmful are the policies that we have in place now to fostering the ability of American workers to move with the wave, to surf the wave uh, that they see in front of them, rather than to have it wash over them. The second element really is programmatic. And it would involve a broader adjustment assistance program than the focused one that we have now. It would not focus simply on training as important as that is, but on assisting workers into new employment through programs that have been widely used in other countries, Germany being the most prominent example uh, in using government assistance to support apprenticeships. And the reason for that shift in focus of the program is the fact that, as you and I both know from our own experience, most technical skills are job related. They are specific to certain jobs. Training in the abstract is very useful, but most of the learning we do is in fact on the job. And so what that suggests is a really a need to focus on what people need to get back to work rather than quote, <laughs> inviting them close quote, to take two years away from work and engage in the sort of training that the TAA program currently provides. So it's a much more practical focus even though it would have a broader scope, it really is designed to help again with the problem of mobility and upward mobility than it is to say, we're just trying to get you a little assistance to do some training for two years and then you're on your own. So you may be anticipating this, but I wanted to ask you too, if you could just rebuild TAA for workers today from scratch, from the ground up, what would it look like? It sounds like you've already hinted at some elements, but how would you answer that directly? Yeah, the, the basic thing is, is to quit thinking of this as trade adjustment assistance. I wouldn't even think of it as adjustment assistance or transition assistance. 
I would think of it as terms of uh, a program is designed to encourage and foster economic mobility because we're far better if we put workers on a course to be thinking about their future in a way that involves change than one that just leaves them static until the change comes. So, and this is a very broad scope, Jill, so forgive me, but you know, when you think about our education, we're having debates of all things, about all things in public education today. One thing we never do is connect the market to public education. Teachers oppose it, businesses are too busy, but the missing element is to make sure that people understand enough about where the economy is and where they fit in the economy, where they fit in their local economy and how that relates to the national economy and the global economy that helps them make the connections and it creates an incentive for them to get the kind of tools in their hands that they need to work, not just now, but in the future. So there's a very broad change in direction that has to start with the program for economic mobility. Then there's the technical aspects of it, which I just mentioned in terms of saying, what kind of incentives can we create for people to be reemployed as quickly as possible? Here's an example. And it's not a TAA program example necessarily, but it's one that um, would again go back to the tax code. Um, probably didn't know that there's limits on what you can deduct for commuting to your job. Well, if we just loosen that a little bit, it's surprising how many more economic opportunities are available to workers in their local or regional economy without having to move that would actually be encouraged by broadening the scope of that uh, tax deduction. So there are simple basic things that fall into that category of realigning our economic policies that would work. Lastly, the program itself really has to be redesigned to focus on getting people back to work. Again, that's where we learn. And because that's where we learn, that's where we should focus. So TAA, as you know, is going to expire um, at the end of this month, not too far from now, by July 1st, it will have expired and revert back to a much more restrictive set of eligibility and benefit provisions. So do you, do you see any appetite for renewing TAA and perhaps having this, this large scale conversation um, that it seems that you are suggesting would be needed to completely rethink you know, how this is done, how adjustment assistance is, is given to people and how, how these programs are designed. Do you see any sort of any glimmers of hope that there might be this type of conversation taking place as TAA is about to expire? I see none. Sadly, Jill, you know, again, going back to a point I know you've made and certainly I made earlier in the conversation, the Biden administration's worker-centric trade policy is really looks an awful lot like Donald Trump's trade policy, which there was no talk of trade adjustment assistance, much less a broader look at what would encourage American workers uh, to use their freedom to actually move with the market. Um, I don't see any appetite among Democrats to move away from the approach that the president has outlined, uh, given the nature of relations between Democrats on the Hill and the folks downtown in any administration, not just the Biden administration. Um, more powerfully, I don't see any new ideas coming out of the Republican side either that would create a new opportunity for the Republican Party, honestly, uh, to embrace how we should structure our economy and our government in a way that fosters the mobility that workers in a free society and in a free economy and open market economy really have to have. But I don't see that 
interest or energy. And this goes back to an earlier point you made, Joe, which was that in the context of TAA, you have to recall that this was a part of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. And at the time, it wasn't recognized that trade hurt all workers as people frame it today. The reality was it was understood that workers had been protected in specific industries where tariffs might go down. And it was that limited problem that TAA was designed to tackle. Now you can see how far we've moved in terms of our views of trade policy and its workers, and there's reasons for that politically. But more powerfully, you can also see through that example why TAA has such a limited purchase on the problem. And so while we need the broader debate, I don't see anybody doing any of the thing than treating TAA as Democrats have, which is a stalking horse for a protectionist trade policy, or as Republicans have, which is simply a pay for for getting trade liberalization by passing a new trade agreement, neither of which is adequate in confronting the challenges that American workers actually face. So what about trade adjustment assistance for firms, which I think is less well known. I don't think that that really makes headlines. I, I have not seen you know, very much on that really anywhere. It's the TAA for workers that you hear a lot about. You ran TAA for firms at the Department of Commerce. And this program helps firms um, who can demonstrate that they have been harmed by import competition. They get technical assistance to develop business recovery plans. So it seems to make sense to work with a firm at this firm level when when there are um, challenges a firm might be facing due to international competition. And the latest data that I've seen, again, for context for our listeners, show that 98 firms, U.S. firms, were helped under this program in 2018, which is the most recent data that I saw so tell us just a little bit more about, about this one. Um, do, do you see any prospects here um, for injecting you know, the elements uh, of the conversation that you seem to suggest that we need to be talking about to, to help workers and re- think more broadly about competition and, and how to help um, workers and firms? Jill, uh, if anything, the situation with TA for firms is even worse uh, than TA for workers, but it's not for the reasons you might think. The truth is, and my friends who you know, are involved in TA for firms will recognize this because it's what I told them 20 years ago, but TA for firms is one of the best examples of public choice theory I've ever seen in my life. You know, It turns out that a cottage industry developed around managing trade adjustment for firms, and they're the ones who benefit from it, not the firms. And it's not to say that you couldn't design a program that would be helpful to firms in encouraging adjustment, but you might be wiser to develop a program for communities and regions to think about adjustment that would help firms. So what you have now are folks who essentially represent an industry that siphons the money that goes into TA for firms and funnels it to individual enterprises when in fact the challenge that even communities in which those firms operate might be the right level of intervention. And so structurally you have a program that benefits the people who are engaged in the process, but doesn't do really, it doesn't do an awful lot for individual firms, but again, it misdiagnoses and doesn't address the fundamental challenge that many firms face, which has much more to do with where they're located and how they connect to the rest of the economy. So I'm not a big fan of TAA for firms. 
Um, that's something where, again, I think we would be helped more by looking at the broader economic policies we have in place and finding ways to direct those at the challenge that our firms face. A good example with, of both the right focus and then its misguided political career is the idea that we have of uh, infrastructure right now going on in Washington. There's absolutely no doubt that better infrastructure would be a way of lowering the cost of participating in the US economy and therefore in the global economy. And we demonstrably need improvements in physical infrastructure. I'd go so far as to agree with many of the democratic uh, promoters of the idea that fostering our investments in human capital through education and training should be a part of infrastructure because human capital is what counts in today's economy. But thinking about it from the point of view of the construct of trade adjustment for firms completely misses the point. So to kind of sum this all up or, or drive us toward kind of some concluding thoughts here from you, we've talked a lot about a misdiagnosis of the problem. What do you think is the most important thing that would be needed in order to correctly diagnose the problem in, in some kind of meaningful way that can move at least conversations forward about how to rethink all of this? You know, I, I think what we're missing, honestly, is um, a conversation about where America moves next, and that's broader than economics. This is going to sound um, a little odd, but I think it goes back to uh, Franklin Roosevelt's inaugural address in 1941. Um, he outlined four freedoms, one of which was the, f the third freedom was, I think the first one was freedom of religion. Second one was freedom of speech. The third one was freedom from want, which reflected the times we were still coming out of the uh, depression at that point. Um, but it went more broadly to the attitude of what the economy should deliver. The fourth freedom was the freedom from fear. Now, at the time, Roosevelt was talking about this as a way of, in an international context, of the freedom from fear of forces that would destroy liberty. Because what we were facing in the context of the rise of Hitler in Germany and, of course, uh, Japanese militarism, which shortly thereafter brought us into the war. Um, the point I would make is that freedom from fear is also a worthy goal to be practiced domestically. That freedom from fear means that we are encouraged to walk out our door and participate in our society and in our economy. And that particularly, let me be very blunt about this, that the fear a woman faces when she walks out her door, even in the neighborhood I live in, is something I'll never experience. But unless we focus about how we make the opportunity available for her to participate, we've missed a worthy goal of what America should be doing at this stage. Now, there are things that we can do that would then facilitate the ability to participate in the economy. Some of those are strictures on things like harassment, stuff like that. But what is actually missing when we go back to the idea of trade, trade adjustment assistance is a rather thoroughgoing look as to what would make her have a better opportunity to engage in the economy when she does walk out the door. 
right? So I think framing it in a way that lets people understand that what the government is doing broadly is to try, first of all, to create an economy in which opportunity is available. And secondly, to put them in a position where they have no fear of engaging in the economy and in our society is really the element. I know I'm getting deeply philosophical here, Jill, and it's probably not what you expected in a discussion about trade adjustment assistance. But if you ask me what we should be doing, it is that broader goal about freedom from fear and the ability of women, minorities, also old white men like me, <laughs> to participate in the economy and in our society uh, that today's challenge really requires. Well, I'm not surprised at the philosophy grant because you always bring that in, which I think is really helpful and energizing in, in terms of how, how to think about this all more broadly. So, I, so thank you. So last question for you today in this podcast, and this yeah. is one that I ask every guest who's ever on the podcast, and that is, what are you reading lately? What is something, one thing you've read lately about trade or global commerce that's been really striking to you? Well, oddly, Jill, two come to mind, and one is broad, one is narrowly focused, um, but they both relate to the underlying angst that people feel about where we are in the economy, the global economy, our national economy, our local economy. Uh, the first one is a book by Johann Norberg called uh, Open, The Story of Human Progress. And there, what's important, I think, is Norberg puts trade in its appropriate context as simply one element of an open economy and an open society. And the broader openness he describes is what has really been the engine behind America's greatness. And so when I read the book, obviously with American eyes, part of what I was thinking is, how do we make sure that because we have to drive the technological frontier outward to grow. And because our ability to drive the technological frontier outward depends on our openness to ideas, our openness to the movement of people, services, and goods, how do we ensure that at the same time, the backlash that Norberg describes that inevitably comes from opening of a society, but driven by human fears, understandably, is something that we confront at the outset so that we all move together. So when I think about the book, I think about it as not just a, um, an explanation of what good economic policy should encourage, but actually a bit of a roadmap of how America is the leading voice for an open society in a Karl Popper sense should be not only domestically, again, keeping our own side of the street clean, but also what America's voice should mean in terms of the broader debate globally. The second thing I would say is much more narrowly focused. Um, I've been struck by the recent interest in Marx, particularly among younger people without any experience either in the debate about Marx or in some of the really horrific uh, practices that governments engaged in, in trying to implement uh, the idea of Marxism. And the article is one by two of my favorite academics. One is Darren Asamoglu, an economist at MIT, future Nobel Prize winner, uh, and James Robinson, a political scientist at Harvard. And the article is entitled, The Rise and Decline of General Laws of Capitalism. What Marx was trying to do more as a philosopher than an economist was actually 
articulate what the laws of capitalism were. And what that misunderstands is capitalism is an epithet. It's not actually a system. Um, what you have is an economic practice that is very human of people engaging in trade and they are specializing in what they do because that yields greater productivity and greater earnings. And that is not a system to be decried. It is one that we've been used, uh, Native Americans traded between uh, the Lakota and Dakota and the Arakara and Hidatsu in North Dakota. I mean, this is not something that's unique to the West or any of those sorts of things, Joe. But the important point is that the Asamoglu and Robinson avoid the current politics associated with terms like socialism in favor of a coherent explanation of why Marx's critique of economics and the search for those laws he claimed to have discovered was as wrong as his theory of revolutionary change was misguided. Uh, in the end, the authors vindicate the old adage, which I've said to you, Jill, which is where Marx was right, there was nothing new, and where Marx offered something new, there was nothing right. And that's wholly apart from the human misery Marxism caused in practice at the hands of Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, today by President Xi in China, when you think about his government policy toward Hong Kong or the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Um, it really is something different. And it is Asimoglu and Robinson doing what George Orwell said, which is our first responsibility and the responsibility of all honest men and women, women at times like this is to restate the obvious. And I know that's something I said, you know, a while back when you and I first met, Joe, um, but they've done that. They have restated the obvious, not only about what Marxism is, but a better way of looking at the challenge that Marx's critique pointed to, which are changes in society and the necessary improvements in our democracy that should come first. Because serving the interests of the average American is what our democracy is supposed to do. How we order incentives in the economy flows from putting that person first. And that is something that Asimoglu and Robinson talk about in terms of outlining how government institutions shape economic opportunity. And in some respects, sets the perfect uh, opportunity or forum for the critique of policies like TAA and more broadly economic policies that currently are hindering the ability of American workers to surf that wave. Well, Grant, thank you. You've just added substantially to my summer reading list. <laughs> These will both be on there. Thank you for, for bringing up two very different pieces. I don't, know if I, I should, I should say, I don't know if I should say thank you or sorry at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say thank you. I'm always looking for good, good recommendations to, to help, you know, one learn more and think more deeply about all of this. So thank you. You've certainly done that. <laughs> Grant, thank you so much for, for being on Trade Matters today. Really appreciate it. It was my pleasure and a good good chance to rethink a lot of these issues, Jill. So thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Alex Wojcicki and JC Toman for helping produce this podcast. Opinions expressed on Trade Matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Yider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.